but since it's 10, almost 1030, let's do the keys. <laughs> so yes, should we perfect. start this? Should we start this part over? What? Did we start the keys at all? No. No. Maybe I did by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that I feel- is the best open I've ever heard. <laughs> I feel like I'm Jennifer hosting a podcast in my own head. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Welcome to the Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, even though it's right in the name, we are a rewatch podcast, so we will spoil the entire series early and often. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, BP. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain, and I am joined as always by Cece. Hello, you can find me at Capital Chick. That's not what your Twitter is, but okay. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, it's A Capital Chick. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fuck. <laughs> She's the best. <laughs> All right, we'll cut that. Um, what did I just say? <laughs> Whatever. Just introduce me. <laughs> See, Aaron, Cece won't let me leave stuff like this because I would gold. totally leave it in there. <laughs> that is gold. That is gold. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, so we hope that you guys checked out or will be checking out our last two episodes. We had interviews uh, separately with Terry Metalis and also Sean Tretta. They gave some great behind the scenes uh, anecdotes and some insights, uh, arguments about the Red Forest, all sorts of fun. So we hope you'll listen to that. Today, we're going to be discussing episodes 106 and 107 of our rewatch. And we'll also be comparing 12 Monkeys to the thematic elements of Frankenstein. And we are joined by our friend, Aaron. Hello. Yay! 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 We're so excited you're here. (laughs) For the last 30 minutes already. (laughs) (laughs) We finally got started. We did it. (laughs) So just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're recording from, social media, all that fun. I'm Erin. I am an English professor. Uh, I'm in Mississippi. That is where I live and work now, but I'm originally from Wisconsin. Um, and you can find me on social media at Rebloggenhood on Twitter. Um, I also have a podcast about the CW dystopian show, The 100, uh, called Metastation, um, at Metastation100 on Twitter um, with my best friend, Claire. Um, Claire wrote a novel about time travel, so, you know... But despite that, she does not understand how time works, which does kind of actually seem like a good qualification for writing about time travel, because then you're not like worried about like, oh, what if it does what if it doesn't work that way? It's like, well, screw it. It works the way I say it works. Um So yeah, is that is that everything about me? I think that's everything. If there's like weird thumps in the background, it's because I have a five-month-old kitten who is losing his goddamn mind uh and is probably gonna knock something over at some point. <laughs> Um, wait, what's your kitten's name? His name is uh, Dinsdale Piranha. So tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, b- 
both of our cats are named after Monty Python characters. We have another cat named Oliver Singen Mollusk, who is one of the upper class twits of the year. And then we had a cat, and though we had he had we had to put him down, he you know just got old earlier this year, named Spiny Norman, um, who is from a sketch about these two mobsters named Doug and Dinsdale Piranha. And um, Dinsdale hallucinates this giant hedgehog called Spiny Norman. So we had to put Spiny down. And then uh, a couple months ago, we found this little kitten in the parking lot at work. Uh, like we pulled into a parking spot and there was just like a kitten under the car. And so my husband kind of like, was, he thought it was fearless. So he's trying to like chase it out of the parking lot so it wouldn't get run over. But he kind of held out his hand and he ran over. And so we took him home and we decided to name him Dinsdale, um, partly to keep the Monty Python tradition going, but then also because, you know, it's in honor of Spiny because it's from the same sketch. So, yeah. Yeah. He's very cute. Well, we have a running competition for our podcast uh, pet mascot. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we, wel- we welcome his antics. Excellent. Um, are you ready to enter our gauntlet of questions that we ask every every uh, guest for the first time? I'm slightly more ready than I was the first time we did this. <laughs> when halfway through the answer to the first question, when I said the word Whitley, Cece was like, wait, stop. And I was like, What? <laughs> And you're like, fuck, are you going to be extra about that, too? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I didn't realize that we were going to have a thing about Whitley. But it actually turned out that she had just noticed that we weren't recording. So I'm mostly <laughs> going to answer the first question. And we'll see about the others. <laughs> we are recording, right, Beep? Yeah. Yep. All right. All right. All right. Yep. Red is uh, flashing. Greens are red. You got it. So, Erin, here's the completely unexpected question. <laughs> Why do you love 12 Monkeys? Um... As I was saying the first time, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, the thing that makes me love a show, like the first thing that makes me love a show, the thing that kind of like grabs my heart and gets me invested is always characters. And I think that this is a show that um, more than most shows and and even more than most shows that I've, you know, really loved over the years. Um, this is a this is a show that's just like it really does right by its characters and it sort of crafts such well-realized, like, fully dimensional, really, really um, very, I don't want to say appealing characters necessarily, but but characters that pull you in and make you feel with them and for them. And they do such a good job, I think, such an impressive job of sort of, of fleshing out all the people in this world, even um, the more minor characters. So, like, Whitley... Um, <laughs> Stop! <laughs> um, I love Whitley. Has nothing to do with Whitley. <laughs> but I think Whitley is a good example. You know, that's a that's a character who is recurring um, throughout. He's never a main character, really. Um, but like, but you know, despite always being a supporting character, he's a character like I wept when he died. You know, I. <laughs> The times when I thought he was in trouble or I thought, thought that he was going to die, I was really upset. You know, like, I cared so much so quickly, even in just in season one. You know, I cared so, so much about um, that character. And I felt like I really, despite him not having a huge amount of, like, backstory or, or screen time, I felt like I really understood this character. And that's just, like, that's an impressive um, thing for a show to be able to do. And so I think... Ultimately, you know, there's so many wonderful things about the show, but I think at the end of the day, that's the thing that I love the most. So who's your favorite character? Uh, Jennifer. 
Um, yes. Jennifer, I love Jennifer from the moment she stepped onto screen and I loved her every, I love her more every time <laughs> I saw her again. Um, she just, I don't know, like she just gets me. I just, I was rewatching season two the other day and, uh, the, the part where chicken Jennifer tells egg Jennifer that she loves her. I just like, I just like clutched my chest again. Like, just like those little moments, you know, um, her vulnerability and her, her perseverance, despite the fact that things are so hard and terrible. Like, I just love her so much. And then the other, my other favorite character who I never, ever, like the character by the end, who is a favorite that at the beginning, I never in a million years would have predicted was Deacon. Um, who I like, I hated Deacon in season one. I was just like, ah, that, you know, that asshole. Um, and then by the end of season four, he was, you know, up there with Jennifer with my absolute favorite. You're still saying that asshole, but through tears. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every single time it looked like he had changed signs. I was like, no, you're ripping out my heart. And then every time it was revealed that he was like, you know, really still on their side. I was like, I never doubted you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so true. You're like, damn it. I knew he would turn. No, he never would. No, I knew he never would. out a favorite moment i'm halfway through my my first rewatch so may change but uh my favorite moment from the first watch was in the finale (coughs) i think the first half of the two-part finale when jennifer plays don't you forget about me and Mm -hmm. deacon comes walking in to titan so sort of his like final like here i am i was like that was the one that i was really like i knew he would be back i knew he wasn't really (laughs) Even though, even though you were probably like the rest of us weeping during that brutal cover of Don't You Forget About Me. Absolutely. (laughs) Just full on sobbing. (laughs) As they freaking twist the knife (laughs) at the end of that episode. Yep, yep, yep. Um, Do you have a favorite episode? I don't. And it's really because um, I. It's like the binge effect. It's like two, so two things. Number one, I've only watched it in like binges, um, which makes it a lot harder to like, for me anyway, like it's, it makes it harder for me to remember like what happened in particular episodes, you know, like because you're watching it in one sort of like one long go, it's harder to remember like, oh, this discrete episode was really my favorite. And then the other reason is like the, the first watch that I did. I, I binged it in the evening when I was in the last few weeks of finishing my book. So, I, like, my brain was just complete mush. Like, I was just in this, like, fugue state every night. And I would come home and watch. And it was great. But it was not really conducive to, like, my brain being able to remember, like, wow, that episode. So, I I don't. <laughs> <laughs> nope. It's also hard to remember that episode when you always watch, like, 11 at a time. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I love that episode. I love I love that one period somewhere in the middle of that four-hour range. I don't know if that was an episode or <laughs> halves of two episodes. <laughs> um, I, but, you know, having just uh, rewatched season two, Lullaby is definitely up there. That is a great episode of television. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just, just in, in terms of, like, self-contained um, – episode i think that one would definitely especially for a groundhog day episode i usually yeah. hate those it's so well you done do 
Yeah. Oh, I usually hate Groundhog Day episodes. Oh. Well, I guess we're going to have to talk about that again. Um, Smackdown. I'm gonna I'm gonna save the two harder ones and just and then jump to. Do you have a favorite era for costumes alone? So not plot, but just aesthetic. Uh, I think the 40s. Anytime they're in the 40s. Yeah, man. I really love 40s like clothing aesthetic and Cassie's red dress. Uh, Uh, Especially with the like the weird butt ruffles. Which only Amanda Shul could pull off, right? Right. Although, like, I kind of look at that, I look at that, and I'm sort of like, I mean, like, I'm a white girl with a pretty flat butt, so I was like, hmm, that could be the dress for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know who, whoever did her hair. Do you guys ever notice she a lot of times, particularly like in the 40s and the 50s, and you know, definitely Victorian era, she had really elaborate, like, beautifully, like, I don't even know. I don't know if I've ever seen people in real life have the, it's, it was like really, we've never given a shout out to the hair department, but it's really, yeah, no. Well, and even I was noticing, um, even in like 2015, uh, when, whenever they go to like a fancy event, like the, mm-hmm. like in this episode, the key, uh, uh yeah. this episode, but in the keys, the keys. Yeah. yeah, the keys. Um, see, I don't even remember. I don't. I even watched these three episodes <laughs> to be like, Aaron, remember what's in these episodes, and it did not work. Um, yeah, so when they like when they go to the the gala, like I remember noticing there's like a shot of the back of her head, and I remember like having two simultaneous thoughts, which is one was that like, wow, that's an amazing hairdo, and then two was like, when did Cassie have a chance to like book a hair appointment with a hairdresser <laughs> to do this extremely elaborate updo? Because there's no possible way that she did that by herself in like you know. A couple hours. And then mysteriously. <laughs> Aaron did it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the hidden talents of a congressional staffer. <laughs> but then she mysteriously changes the updo to a ponytail with the wraparound thing. Yeah. Later in the episode. Yeah. Like without just like, yeah. boom, done, you know. I know. Shikasi yeah. is an impress- a woman of so many talents. And, so or, many talents. Or Aaron. Or Aaron is. I'm going to headcanon that. Aaron is really good at doing hair. Does that mean yeah. that, that Aaron is like secretly alive and traveling with her into the past to do her hair? <laughs> I have no problem with that. Oh, man. <laughs> that would be one of the benefits of living in the Red Forest. They brought him back just for that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the Red Forest, hmm. do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? I do. Yes, I do. Um, mostly just because I am not dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer to have things like hope and joy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so would you stop so that you if you were in her position would you stop the countdown i th- i like to think that i would yeah i would and i th- and i th- i think it's not just wishful thinking um i because it the idea of living in one moment forever doesn't really appeal to me you know i don't really think about i don't really think about happiness in that way um so i think that i would because I, I i don't think that i would be as susceptible to that like that appeal but I, the, I i will say the other reason why i prefer to think that cassie stopped the count countdown um is precisely because it was so hard for her you know because 
the temptation was so, so strong. And she really wanted the Red Forest in a lot of ways. And she really wanted to live in that moment. And so I just think it's, you know, it's not just like a happier ending in terms of, you know, not inaugurating hell on earth and and all that stuff. But then also just in terms of like, in terms of Cassie's character arc, you know, that like, getting to give Cassie as a character, that kind of um, strength. And, and I think it fits with her. Like Cassie is a character who has always been so strong and so selfless. Um, you know, like even when things are getting incredibly hard, even when the temptation is strong, even when she wants to quit, you know, she's not a character who has ever done that before in the, in the history of the series. And I, I don't see why at that critical moment, she would suddenly become a different person. So, yeah. yeah and, and, you know, it's interesting that you brought one – it made me think of at one point on a previous podcast, we were wondering, is there a character that when they were put to the test of your one versus the greater good, most characters along the way are picking their one, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But – the obvious answer to that after I thought about it is if you believe Cassie stopped the countdown, then Cassie's ultimately a character that does that, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. who has lost everything. Mm-hmm. And then this is the very last, right? I mean, it's not only losing the person. I mean, it's like not even ever having a memory of them. I yeah. Mean, it's just yeah. awful. Yeah. Um, And so it really is this like, I, I think probably on the same scale as what Cole does in the series, it's unbelievable self-sacrifice. Oh, yeah. So to think that she didn't then takes away that kind of triumphant end to a character arc, which, you know, is why we want that to be the ending. Yeah. So I exactly. But yeah. 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 But I mean, I will say having having um, heard that theory since I finished and rewatching it, I do see the moments where like there are seeds there – that from the beginning, that suggests that, you know, this will always be a temptation for Cassie. So it's consistent, you know, um, that that she would be very, very tempted not to do it. But I, I do think that she ultimately would. I really do. And I think, honestly, all, I think all, all of the main characters would at the end. You know, if it had been Cassie, if it had been Ramsey or Deacon or Jennifer, I think they all would have would have in that moment. Um, and the ironic thing, and this is something that we can talk about more um, maybe later when we talk about uh, Frankenstein, but I think like the really ironic thing is that the one character who, you know, who who wanted the Red Forest is the one character who didn't have a one. You know, like Olivia doesn't mm-hmm. have a one. She doesn't have a person she wants to spend eternity with. She doesn't have a, a perfect moment. Um, and she's the one who will do anything, sacrifice anything to make this come about, which I think is a really interesting kind of irony. Mm-hmm. Um she just doesn't want to face the idea of like ever dying and potentially being alone in that regard or failing or failing yeah yeah i or or i think also um or having the entire purpose of her existence be nullified i mean that's the other mm. thing she doesn't have a person she doesn't have really relationships what she has is you know the what gives like meaning to her existence is being you know ultimately like being the witness and and bringing about sort of bringing to culmination this project that is both the reason that she was made in the first place and also the the only thing that she has now or has ever had in her entire life basically and so so for the red forest not to exist not to happen it doesn't just mean that she dies but like and doesn't just mean that she's erased from time but it also just means that like 
insofar as she ever existed, that existence was meaningless. And I think that maybe is what the horror is to her. But, like, the thing that makes you strong, if you're the person, if you're, like, Cassie, you know, like, you're sort of faced with, do I, do I let this counter go to zero? And then I have the people or the person or or the life that has been my life that has meant everything to me or do I stop it and lose everything I think you know what what gives meaning to that decision um is different you know it's not like like the tragedy is you erase people and a life that meant so much to you and the meaning was in those people and in that life but um but at the same time you know like stopping the red forest as we know, ultimately in this show, like, it doesn't mean that that stuff didn't happen. You know, like, it did happen, even yeah. though it got undone. Um, and uh, so I think that's, like, one of the most beautiful, one of, like, the things that I really love about the show and the way that it thinks about that, about relationships and about time and stuff is that, you know, that idea that, like, um, that what makes love or relationships important isn't the outcome. It isn't the end game. You know, it's not like, what do you get in the end? Do you get forever? What's important is that you did love and Mm. having, having loved someone, loving someone, that's something that, that isn't, that isn't tethered to time. You know, um, this is, that's why Ethan exists because it's, that's why Cassie can remember, you know, after, uh, Cole goes back and, and undoes things. So he, um, so, What's her bucket? The primary doesn't get um, paradoxed. <laughs> That's my I don't favorite know, but we're, we're definitely calling her that from now on. <laughs> I can't believe these guys haven't heard what's her bucket. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, like the this the idea that um, you know that death can be undone, love can't. You know, I think it's like a really beautiful idea that that having experienced love, even if it ends. It doesn't, that doesn't undo the love. It doesn't make it meaningless, you know? Which, yep. interestingly, I originated with Cassie. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we heard it as an audience from the primary played by Madeline Stowe. But mm-hmm. the reason, I guess, we're to conclude the primaries knew about it is because Cassie said it in the recording. And they're right. aware of all of this. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and which is another reason to think that Cassie did stop the countdown because Cassie knows that, you know, like as painful as it is for her uh, to let go of that perfect moment or whatever. Like, I think deep down she does know, you know, she, she, um, she does believe that, that that's true. Um, so yeah. And then of course, like, like in the end, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy too, because Jones rewrites the program or whatever it is. I don't know if it's a program. She rewrites the code that erases Cole in order to preserve him because she loves him, you know, because all these people loved him and because she loved all those other people. And because those relationships were so important, you know, like she redid the, the very like code that would save everyone in the universe um, in order to save Cole because, you know, beyond all this other stuff, beyond, like, making sure that, like, the universe isn't, like, collapsed into one hellish moment, she, it was just so important to her to find a way to save this person that she loved from oblivion. So, yeah. Do you think in a funny way, then, that Jones's arc is actually a circle? Because she starts the whole problem because she's messing with time because she loves Hannah so much she wants to bring her back. Yeah. And she ends up by the end of this series, like, 
kind of throwing caution to the wind again <laughs> and like playing yeah. fast with the with the rules because she loves Cole's like her grandson so much that she can't let him go and not. I have think so. Stuff. Yeah, it's so CC good. said grandson. Everyone drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I mean, I definitely think, like, it's it's a circle, but it's a – I mean, like, the great thing about that is, like, it's a new circle, right? And I think mm-hmm. this is a circle that time kind of – the idea is that, like, time kind of winked at it and said, like, okay, I'm going to let you have this one, you know, um, instead of it being foisted upon time, I guess. Um, do we know why – because do they ever – I don't remember, but I don't think that they ever say why Elliot and Katarina started working on – time travel right like like katarina finishes it because of hannah but they're working on it before hannah yeah um i haven't rewatched. um it's been a while since i rewatched season four but weren't they initially thinking of it in terms of like if you got sick with a disease like cancer then you could go in the future fix it and then come back and save people was was yeah that? that could be yeah that could be yeah, it's fun. Yeah, we have to. Yeah, but yeah, it is. I mean, it's just because and, and we will guys, we will get to the episode, but <laughs> the episodes that we're talking about, but there's two things I was really just because we have a brilliant English professor on the pod tonight. Two quick questions with like big picture questions before we jump into the actual like rewatch part. Mm-hmm. The first is with this kind of I was just interested if you had thoughts about time as a character um and kind of the way they play around with this chosen one story that it, it just in terms of like taking a step back and thinking about the way they play with time as a sentient being if you had mm-hmm. any sort of big picture thoughts about that i mean i think the chosen one story thing is interesting um because i feel like it's almost like it, it sort of fakes you into thinking that it's a chosen one story until the very very last final gut punch of like you know, the one who seemed to be the chosen one is, is actually, is the demon, right? You know, like, Cole mm-hmm. isn't so much chosen as he is the bug in the system that has to be removed. Um, so, which I think is kind of a neat little twist. I was trying to think of other stories where time is a character. Yeah. Um, I think that what's interesting about, like, this, the time as a character thing is, uh, you know, it's not really, it's not really, like, clear. And I think this is this is for the best. I mean, if, if, whether or when um, time is is a personification, you know, like that that the characters are kind of um, projecting or imagining a sort of personality onto an abstraction time um, to explain it. Um, but in other cases, it definitely like like time seems to be something with a consciousness of itself. Um, but I think like the interesting thing with that is like, if you do think about time as a character, then it's like this weird way where you have a story where, you know, the entire plot is based on the feelings and actions and reactions of a character who never appears or speaks, um, Mm -hmm. you know, who's like, whose existence can only be inferred and whose motivations can only be, uh, sort of guessed at. Um, so which is like a sort of like if you think about like like what it means to what what it means to be a character like what is a character um it's kind of like a fascinating uh structural choice i think um so yeah i don't know i i can't really think yeah. of any i mean like the only 
I can't think of any other sh- like shows or stories or anything like that that have time as a character like that, where time is a character in that kind of um, abstract or quasi-abstract sense or semi-abstract sense versus, I mean, there are definitely like stories where you have a literal personification of time, you know, like, like time is actually a person who appears in a human body and speaks and interacts and whatever. Um, but I feel like that's a slightly different thing. Mm-hmm. Which the show actually, uh, right in season two, in Lullaby, Cassie makes fun of that. She's like, oh, is time, a, a, you know, a man with a long beard? Yeah, uh, right, right and, exactly. And there, yeah, yep. But yeah. it makes sense because if you think about it, like, if time has a consciousness, you know, it is, we know it's not, a, it's not a human consciousness. Like, whatever it is, it is not human. Um, and so, so in a sense, like, whatever that being is, maybe it's not even a being, but it can't really be conceived of, you know, we can't really know like it would be we're so reductive to sort of personify it more directly, I feel like. Um, so so kind of getting at it through that idea of of, you know, the 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 primaries sort of being humans who have some kind of um symbiotic consciousness with time. Um, but also I think, you know, what Jennifer says something about like time needs humans and humans need time, you know, like humans Time needs humans because we are what make it possible. Um, and then we need time. And I think maybe like the way that I kind of interpreted that, and this is, this is thinking about time less as a character, but more just sort of, um, that human like awareness of the passage of time. And I think awareness of mortality is what gives time significance. Like we mark the passage of time, past, present, future, because we are always anticipating or recalling various events and like what gives that framework it's it's sort of weight what what makes it necessary to mark time is that eventually our time will end right like if time were endless if it was just infinite on both sides it wouldn't have meaning and so i think there's um i kind of read that or understand that in the context of the rest of the show is sort of the fact that human beings are creatures who are mortal, but who are who are aware of their mortality and who are able to sort of conceive of the passage of time and um, conceive of the linkages of, you know, like living people across time, like literally time would not exist without that. We think time into experience into existence um, through our like consciousness. So so it's not really separable from humanity. Does that make sense? Am I making yeah, sense? absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, that, and I don't think you know that symbiotic. It's just it's something that like I don't think I have ever stopped to really think about until I watched the show. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> that, you, yeah. you, I always think of it like the one way in that we are defined by time, yeah. but not not the not the reverse. Yeah, yeah. So Aaron, yes. It comes up in one of the episodes we're going to talk about, but I wanted to just move it up to the front of the discussion because I have a feeling you may have a lot of thoughts about this. But when, when I'm just going to say Foster calls Jones hair Frankenstein, mm-hmm. go. go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I had actually, I had forgotten that he called her that. And I was thinking about, like, even before that happened, I had been thinking a lot about um, sort of, like, 
a lot of thematic parallels, I feel like, uh, exist between this show and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And then he said it and I was like, oh, great. Okay, awesome. I'm not just like, you know, whatever in my head. Uh, one thing I was going to say, which I I don't know if any of the writers knew this. It's a kind of a hilarious, amazing coincidence if they if they don't. Um, they might not because it's not very well known. Um, but Mary Shelley wrote another much lesser known novel uh, called The Last Man, which is a post-apocalyptic novel about a world that is decimated by plague what um, yeah uh it's it has doesn't get read very much um it's like much weirder and sadder and slower um than frankenstein frankenstein just kind of like hits the ground running and never stops and this one's a little bit a little bit like takes a little while to get going but yeah uh post-plague dystopia by mary shelley wow um yeah <laughs> So, um, so I feel like 12 Monkeys roots in Mary Shelley are very deep. Um, but I think, so the couple of things that I like, sort of like big things that I think about, you know, in terms of parallels between Frankenstein and Mary Shelley, do you, have you guys like read Frankenstein in college? In college. Okay. So, um, so like a quick rundown of some of the important stuff from the novel, just, you know, for you, for, for anybody who's listening, who hasn't read it, um, or hasn't read it recently or whatever. So, um, the novel version of the events, um, is very different from like the sort of pop culture Frankenstein. So in the novel, um, it's sort of set up as a series of, of nesting narratives. So like first there's a, there's a guy named Robert Walton and who's taking a journey, taking this like scientific journey into up to the North pole. And he's trying to like, he wants to find the source of magnetic North basically. Um, but he's writing letters back to his sister who never answers. And he's just like, he's like partly com- talking to her about, he has these sort of grand, uh, scientific ambitions. And then the other thing he keeps talking to her about is how lonely and isolated he is. Like he, he's desperately lonely. He feels completely isolated from, you know, everyone around him. He just wants a friend that he has nobody to sympathize with him. Um, and so they get stuck up in the ice in the North Pole. And while they're stuck up there, they come across, they see this like giant man going by on a sled. And then like a couple hours later, another guy comes by who's like, sort of like starving to death and they pick him up and pull it on the shit. And that man is Victor Frankenstein. So then that's the first frame. Second frame is Victor telling his story to Walton. So um, Victor's story uh, in the novel, he was like grew up in Switzerland. He had this like well-to-do family. He was really interested in alchemy when he was younger um, because he liked, you know, like, Alchemy being the kind of like medieval quasi scientific um, study, most most famously trying to turn lead into gold or trying to turn anything into gold. But the other thing that um, alchemists, among the things that alchemists tried to do, was um, find the elixir for Im- eternal life and to reanimate dead matter. Um, and so he's raised by his mother's father, and his parents adopt this little girl. Um, and the, the way that they find her is differs a little bit between the different editions, but basically she's like this little orphan girl, um, that her mother kind of comes across and just, they just, and in one version, she's this little like, uh, you know, Roma girl, 
Um, but she's blonde and all the rest of the, and beautiful and all the rest of the children are, you know, brown haired and ugly. And so her mother falls in love with her and decides to bring her home and give her to Victor. Um, and so he has this, this girl he's not related to, but who is raised as his sister, but then also is his future wife. So there's like all this like weird incestuous stuff happening. And his mother dies. Um, so there's kind of like formative events. His mother tries to nurse this girl back to health. I think she had measles or something. Um, and her mother gets sick. His mother gets sick and dies. Um, and so he kind of, this is like the start of his obsession with death and with loss. And then he goes off to university. And, um, while he's there, uh, he has this, sort of revelation he's like studying and he's he starts reading alchemy texts again he's reading these other um sort of scientific texts and he has this epiphany where he realizes he's figured out the secret to reanimating dead flesh um and so he starts to gather together the the like body parts to build this creature and the, the really significant thing that happens during this um phase is um there's this kind of like pattern that happens throughout the novel. And I think this is really, this is one of those things that's important um, for thematically also, uh, or that, that I think kind of crosses over or relates in 12 monkeys. So he has this family, right? But he's traveled far away. They're not with him um, during the period that he is sort of obsessed with this scientific project to build a new being out of the parts of dead people. Like he talks about, he like, he literally goes into like charnel houses and mausoleums and like digs up graves and stuff. Um, during this two year period, he completely isolates himself. So he doesn't write home. He doesn't speak to anyone. Um, you know, he kind of like loses touch with, with everybody else, with all of the, everybody in the world who cares about him. Um, until finally one night, his, the creature is completed and he's built it to be beautiful. And, um, and he, he does whatever he does to bring it to life. He never specifies. And then it wakes up and it opens its eyes. And it's so hideously ugly. It's like so horrific that Victor flees the lab and he goes into his, his like bedroom and he like passes out. And he has this weird dream where, um, he sees his adopted sister slash future wife. And he runs up to her and he kisses her. And when he pulls back, it's no longer his sister slash future wife. It's his mother's dead corpse, which is one of those like really like arresting images that you will never get out of your head. Um, (laughs) 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 Like there's some fucking edible shit happening uh, in this book. Um, Anyway, so like he and he wakes up and the creature is looking down at him and he's sort of making noises and he freaks out and he flees. He's just like he runs away. And when he comes back to his apartment, um, the creature's gone. He doesn't know where it's went. He doesn't want to know. You know, he's just like, he's just glad that it's gone. Um, and so uh, from there, basically what happens is there's sort of like these patterns of he's like in this depression. His friend comes to get him. He goes back to his family. He's kind of like reintegrated into the family. He's still kind of distant from them because he's got this like weight of guilt and knowledge of what he's done. And then they go on a trip into the Swiss Alps up in the mountains and he's like going on these nature walks because kind of like being out in nature gets him out of his head and makes him feel better. And, um, and he sees the creature 
the creature has found him. And he comes, like, the creature is, like, this superhuman strength. He can just, like, sort of run up and down mountains and across glaciers, and he's this gigantic thing. And so the creature, you know, comes up to him and says, and demands that he come back with him and um, and listen to his story. So now you get the third middle narrative, and this is the creature, um, the creature telling Victor his story. Um, and so the center of the narrative is about the creature that he made who, like, and it, this the story sort of starts with, like, from the moment he gains consciousness, um, and he sort of goes through this whole thing about like how he learned, you know, what like the sensory data that he was taking in meant, like how he learned that fire is hot, how he learned what hunger is, how he learned, you know, that he could move, how he learned how he could use his voice. And, um, so the kind of culminating event of all of this, the creature sort of slowly is learning about himself all alone out in the world. He, like, he has no idea, you know, he doesn't know anything about who he is. He doesn't have language yet. He's just, just this like thing out in the woods all alone. Um, and eventually he sort of creeps into, there's like a hut that's attached to this house, um, up somewhere in some village. So he's like living in this little like lean to on the side of a house. And, um, he can, he can watch the family inside the house. Um, through the crack in the wall. And from watching the family, he learns two things. Number, well, a few things. Number one, he learns language. So he learns to speak and to understand. Number two, he learns what a family is. So he's like watching these people and he sort of realizes like they're all together. They have each other. They care about each other. They take care of each other when they're hungry, when they're troubled, you know, they come together. He, so he sort of observes and watches and he learns what love is and he learns what family is. Um, Number three, um, through a series of sort of events, he learns how to read. Uh, so one of the characters in the house, they're teaching her how to read. And so he kind of le- teaches himself along. Um, and he reads, uh, he reads Paradise Lost, among other things. And then he also finds Victor's notes in the pocket of the coat that he stole from him. And he, re- so he reads the notes about his own creation. So then number four, he learns that he, that he is, unique in the universe that he was made not born um that that victor was the only connection that he had and is now gone so he now knows basically like there is a whole world there are relationships there's family there is love and i have none of these things and he doesn't know what he is you know there's a sort of like long phase where he's like i don't you know like in all the world, there are species, there are animals that are born from each other, that belong to each other, and I don't have a place. You know, what am I? I'm this thing that was built rather than born, um, that has no place in nature. So what am I? So he finally um, gets up the nerve. He's been sort of like quietly helping. He does chores for the family at night. They don't know who's doing it. So finally, he decides to try to introduce himself to them. And the el- the eldest like the, the patriarch of the family is this old bl- blind man. So he decides he's going to creep in because by this time he's also looked in a, like he's looked at his reflection in a pond and he knows that he's hideous. Um, he creeps in when the kids are gone and he starts talking to this man and saying, you know, like I'm, I'm helpless and alone, and, but I've been watching your family and I, you know, and I just want to be a part of your family and help you and care for you. And um, the old man is listening to him and then his children come back and they see him and they immediately are so like the reaction is just total revulsion and they start beating him and chasing him away. And mm-hmm. as a result of that rejection, um, this is the moment that the creature decides like the pain of that rejection of knowing that 
Victor made him and then fled from him and left him alone. And then he found this family and he tried to help them and he tried to be a part of them. And then they not only rejected him, but they chased him off and they beat him and they, you know, um, the pain of that is so terrible that he basically like, that is the moment when he decides, um, fuck all of mankind. I'm going to get my revenge, um, on mankind. And so he runs off and, um, by coincidence, he he finds Victor's family and he winds up murdering Victor's younger brother um, and then framing someone else for the murder. And then he follows Victor into the mountains. And at this point, he's like, OK, well, you know, you made me. You left me alone. I have no one. I'm miserable and isolated and I don't know what I am and I don't fit anywhere. So you have to make me a partner. You have to make me another creature. That I, so that I have someone. Um, and then if you do that, then I will take that other creature and we will go live. We'll leave human beings alone. We'll just leave, you know, but I need this, this partner. And Victor, the rest of the novel is basically sort of Victor waffling about whether he's going to do it. Um, and, um, cause he's worried that if he builds another creature, that it will be evil like this one and that they will have children and overrun the earth, um, which is one of those things where it's like, well, you're making it. So how about you just don't give them genitals, but whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How do you even know that they could reproduce? Like think Victor. Um, Finally, he decides not to, he decides that he, he owes it to man to, to humankind not to make another abomination. And so the creature is like, all right, well, if you're not going to make me a a companion, then I am going to make sure that you are as alone as me and we only have each other. So then the creature murders his best friend and then murders his wife on their wedding night and then basically like chases him across the world. Um, And at the very end of the novel, um, Victor dies. So he's like on the ship. And um, it's Walton narrating it again. And Victor just sort of dies of like exhaustion and whatever. And um, the creature leaps through the window on the ship into the room. And uh, Walton comes in. He sees the creature. So this is the only time in the entire novel that you see the creature through anybody's eyes but Victor's. You know, this is when you got to kind of hear his, his speech from someone else. And basically he says, like, I, I, I only existed to make this man, my father and my creator acknowledged me. And the only way that I could do that was to hurt him. And I wanted him to feel what I felt. Um, but I know that I'm evil and I hate myself. And now that he's gone, there's no reason for me to keep existing. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go out into the, the, you know, the ice flows of the North and I'm going to make a funeral pyre and I'm going to burn myself alive on it. And that's going to be the end of me and of this whole thing. And then that's the end of the novel. Um, so, wow. uh, <laughs> <laughs> so ignorant. <laughs> well, I gotta um, say he's dramatic. He's dramatic as hell at the end. Jesus. <laughs> they're all, every single person in this novel is a dramatic fucking hoe. Like they are all messy benches for sure. Victor is also a dramatic hoe. Uh, I mean, the creature comes by it, you know, honestly, like he's just, just like his father. Um, so, like, I think there's a couple of – so, for me, I think thinking about the show, there's, like, a few different overlaps that are really interesting. And one of them is, of course, like, um, when when Foster calls her hair Frankenstein, I think he's sort of referring to her as, like, a mad scientist, right? Like, am I remembering mm-hmm. the context of that correctly? Mm-hmm. So, he's sort of, like, 
implying that she's this she's a she's a scientist who's been sort of driven to committing some kind of atrocity uh due to her arrogance and her selfishness or whatever. And I think that there is, you know, there's like there's a lot of over there's a lot of parallels between her and Victor in terms of like, you know, if you think about Victor, the kind of one of the formative events that really set him on this path to becoming obsessed with how to reanimate dead matter and how to, you know, how to bring about eternal life is because his mother died, right? Like he had this really formative loss of somebody that he loved. And and in a way, if you think about it, like what Jones is trying to do is she wants to reanimate dead things, right? Like she wants to to take dead things and make them alive again. Mm. And uh and then also if you think about the fact that like if she creates time travel, if time travel is the monster or if, if like Cole is the creature, if like Cole is the thing that is created by time travel that then wreaks havoc on everything by his mere existence, then there's a kind of like relationship there. And I think you can also see like the fact Cole and Ethan, the fact that they're both sort of born outside of time, they are also beings who don't have a place in the natural order. You know, like they, they're sort of like these weird anomalies that kind of float out there. So there's a, there's, um, some parallels in terms of the ideas of like, uh, you know, like scientists kind of breaking the natural order. But I actually think for me, the more like potent parallels, the more meaningful ones have to do with, that idea of um, like what makes you a monster um, is is social and emotional isolation. Um, like when Victor makes the creature, when he's starting to make the other creature, like the, he's he is totally isolated when he does that. He, he's he's isolated from everyone that he loves and who loves him. He doesn't speak to anyone. He keeps this a whole, he keeps it a secret from everyone. Nobody knows that he's doing this. He's totally isolated. The creature, you know, same thing. Like all the creature wants is love. All he wants is a place to belong. And all he wants is, um, you know, is someone. Uh, and the thing that makes him a monster, you know, the thing that makes the creature evil ultimately is not the fact that he is reanimated dead matter, you know, and that he exists outside of nature. Really, it's it's the fact that he's alone. You know, it's the fact that he that the fact that he doesn't have a place with other people. He doesn't have relationships. You know, like that's the thing that that sort of breaks him. Um, and so I think if you look at the characters in Twelve Monkeys who you can think about as being sort of parallel to or having similarities to Victor or the creature, um, that same sort of issue plays out again and again. I was thinking about when I was watching rewatching season one, I was thinking about this with Jones in terms of thinking about Jones as a Victor Frankenstein, you know, like Jones is Frankenstein. I think it's significant that Foster calls her hair Frankenstein um, at the moment when her kind of uh, her monomaniacal focus on this achieving this goal leads her to do the most terrible things that she does, really, you know. Um, but also that's the mo that's the point in the show when Jones is the most emotionally isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she this is before she will she's still not allowing anyone in. You know, it's like there are people around her, but she doesn't have personal relationships with anyone. And mm-hmm. she keeps pushing them away. You know, she's fixated on this goal of erasing time. And she keeps like, she keeps saying to Cole, you know, like everybody around you is dead. You know, these are all ghosts. These people aren't real, you know, like what's real is this thing that we're going to do. But right now, none of this is real. We're not going to connect to anyone. And I think there's, 
so like the the that kind of like running theme of um emotional isolation being kind of the root of if not evil then of our worst selves mm-hmm. um you know uh and 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 also the kind of idea of like placing some kind of scientific achievement that is meant to do some kind of abstract good for all of humanity, which is the thing that Jones keeps saying. And that's what Victor says, you know, like, if I do this, then this is the greatest gift that I could give to all humanity, you know, privileging that kind of abstract all humanity over, um, or not even just privileging it over individual people, because that's a little bit too simple, but focusing on the one to the exclusion of having any kind of relationships with anyone else. I think that's like, it's an interesting sort of parallel between the two of them. And I think, um, you know, like there's there Cole and Ethan, you can definitely kind of like think about as, as being like the creature in some way, but like Ethan and Olivia, I think, especially as being characters who Ethan was sort of born outside of time. Right. So like he was conceived in a reality that no longer exists. So in that way, he's kind of in a not like he doesn't belong in the natural order as it exists. Um, and the fact that like what makes him do the horrible things that he does is the fact, arguably, that he was so isolated. He was completely isolated as a child. He wasn't allowed to be a child, right? Like he he didn't have a family. He had a cult. He wasn't right. like there. He wasn't a child that they loved. He was a prophet that had a purpose that he had to fulfill for them. Um, and Olivia, same sort of thing. You know, if you think about Olivia as being that, that like, as she calls herself, that thing in a box that she, she created. Yeah. yeah she's she was not cre- born and created by like another more horrific because he is associated with Nazis. But yep. Dr. Kirshner is like yep. another kind of Frankenstein. Exactly. Right? He creates her. Exactly. She's made, we don't even know if she was actually like born. We know that, she was made like she was developed from the eggs of um what's her mother's name? I don't Mantis? remember. Mantis is her mother Mantis. Yeah, they call her yeah. Mantis. Yeah, but but Mantis was developed from her, so that's a whole other thing. It's yeah. it's that weird cycle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's that kind of like weird, and and again, once again, there's that kind of quasi incestuous loop there too. That like weird sort of incesty mm-hmm. uh, stuff is also in. Um, Frankenstein. And so, so if you think about Olivia being, she's made, she's not born and, and she's like acutely aware of it. You know, it's not like she was made and not born, but then like was in a family. Like she was literally in a box, you know, like she knows she's a thing and she was never really allowed to like belong anywhere, you know? And so like in some ways you can sort of think about, uh, I, I feel like the show is sort of, playing with or meditating on some of those same kind of like core themes as Frankenstein um, in terms of like, what does it mean to be a, a being that doesn't have a place kind of profoundly doesn't have a place on all these levels? Like if that is what makes you, you know, evil, if that's what makes you this big bad, like, is it her fault? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and it's it, like you said before regarding Olivia, though, um, like contextually, 
they say within the show, you know, the the true witness is the one who fears loneliness. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I know that that haunts Cece a little bit now when you get into the bigger uh, discussion <laughs> of the Red Force. But assuming they're referring to the to Olivia, it's just like you said, it's that isolation that mm-hmm. is what has caused her to have to latch onto this purpose. Otherwise, why does she exist at all? Right. I mean, exactly. at one point, but at one point, it, it's not her fault up to a point. Yes, because yes. when we see in season four where she is, you know, living with another woman who clear like there's feelings there and so and they and the woman like cares about her and she snaps her neck like on a dime. Right. Yeah. And you have that mm-hmm. fake out where you think it was her mother who did it, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. So at some point she makes the active choice to continue her isolation because she thinks that's her purpose, right? Yes, yes. And I mean, the same thing with the creature. I think, you know, there's a kind of, you can have a very, like a very real debate about the creature because like on the one hand, he's shaped by these experiences that were entirely out of his control, you know, like his creation and his abandonment and his rejection. But on the other hand, like he knows that murder is wrong. (laughs) He knows he doesn't have to do it. He chooses to do it deliberately to cause pain to Victor, you know? So like, so I think there's, I think in both Olivia and the creature too, like they're, they're characters that really um, sort of prompt these, a much more nuanced sort of like contemplation of, um, of guilt and, and responsibility, you know, like to what extent are they, are they, you know, like when, when, when are they culpable? Yeah. Like, where do we draw the line between the parts that they had no control over because they were shaped by these circumstances, you know, that they didn't get to choose? And at what point do you cross the line where they are, you know, fully conscious, intelligent, um, quasi-human beings <laughs> who are perfectly capable of understanding what they're doing and why and and that it's, you know... It is wrong. <laughs> um, and and also, at care. what point are they are they fully formed in such a way that even though their desire is against that isolation, you know, there's an anger. Oh, I've been isolated, and I I don't want to be isolated. But where is the line where you couldn't integrate if you were even allowed to at this point? Exactly. Yeah, and I think like with Olivia, especially that question is is particularly acute because of. Um, you know, because the show is kind of like about these like causal circles that everyone is trapped in, um, you know, like, and, and where the lines of free will are in those, you know, like, so M- Olivia, and also just thinking about like the mindfuck of like Olivia was being her d- choices and her decisions and her and what she did and why was being shaped by the witness her entire life and the witness is her. You know, so it's like, (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) like, if anybody in this entire show, you know, maybe doesn't, she might have the most complicated sort of, uh, uh, culpability. (laughs) I was even going to say like complicated question of, of free will than anybody. Like on the one hand, she has the least free will. On the other hand, she has the most because it's Olivia telling Olivia what to do. That makes my brain hurt. Right? I know. I'm like, all right, all right, that's enough of that. Um, But I think, you know, your theme of just fleshing out a little bit, because I think the theme of isolation and found family Mm -hmm. 
it's ultimately what, for lack of a, you know, a better way of saying it, that's what wins the day. It's all of these characters' journeys. So yes, whether absolutely. it's, as, as you pointed out, Jones calls herself out at nearly the end of the series saying, I never, you know, we're a family. Mm-hmm. And it's never what I wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but here we are. And mm-hmm. and she's so fiercely, you you know, you can tell and you know, on and that feeling of family is what ultimately saves Cole. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have like comparing, for example, Emma and Hannah mm-hmm. and one daughter who, whether it was the time that she spent with Jennifer or ultimately with her mother, Versus Emma, it's one one daughter being raised with love and one without. Yeah. Or Jen or Jennifer, right? In season one, I I mean, physically and emotionally isolated, mm-hmm. right? Like she's in a room in a mental institution. Her mother tried to drown her. Her father has her locked up, and she goes down uh, for a while into season two because of that isolation and because of that yearning with Olivia telling her, you know, basically like, I'll be your mother, I'll take care of you and manipulating her. She goes down an almost pretty dark path of like dropping the plague on a city. Deacon, even though he's the leader of the West Seven and people, he's around a lot of people. Mm-hmm. emotionally is very isolated and he has a whole journey of finding this found family as yeah. does Cole, right? Cole Absolutely. only has Ramsey. Um, and, you know, thinking about it, it's kind of across the board. Everyone is, I mean, other than Cassie and Cassie's the one that gets stripped away throughout, right? She starts yeah. with the most <laughs> and then they strip <laughs> it away from her. Yeah. But everyone else has, I mean, she does gain this found family but as well. She just loses a lot. <laughs> Jesus. So it's just so interesting because yeah. isolation, human beings without love versus human beings with love and what we're capable of with it or without it. And it, and it calls to mind a quote that we're going to talk about in one of the episodes today about sort of like what you have inside you, the two wolves, right? Exactly. Like mm-hmm. Anger versus love and kindness. We all have it within us. And that kind of nurture versus nature, what you're raised with and what you're not, it just ties into so many different themes that the show plays with throughout. And I think the sort of isolation issue, um, it complicates that even that, that you know, that, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, what would you call that? Um, parable, I guess it would be. Oh, the um, Cherokee folktale. Yeah. yeah, I mean Par- because yeah. because the sort of tale the the idea is like you everybody has both of these wolves and the one that wins the fight is the one you feed. Um, but but part of what this question that it raises is like, is it equally? Well, you know, what makes it easier to feed the love wolf than the hate and fear wolf? Right. Like, in what's there are certain situations in which you know it may not feel equally possible to feed one versus the other, you know, and that in isolation, people in isolation, people who aren't, who don't have someone to love and who aren't loved, it's harder to feel, feed the love wolf. You know what I mean? Like, is Mm -hmm. it, is it just you who has to feed your own wolf or does that love wolf also get fed by the existence of these relationships. Well, that's what I was thinking in the context too of being a child. There's a certain point in life where you're unable to do that for yourself. So it almost depends on, you know, from a nurture standpoint, which one are you trained to feed? Exactly. Which one did your parents feed? And did you have parents to feed them, to feed the love wolf? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, And, and I think again, like it, it does seem to track pretty well if you look at, you know, like 
the deacon who does the worst things is the deacon who is the most emotionally um, isolated, who is deliberately emotionally isolating himself. I mean, I think that's the other thing that that's the other sort of like question of morality there, like the places where you have choice. Um, and this is with Victor too in the book. I think this is one key difference between Victor and the creature. Victor, when he is isolated, is choosing to be isolated. He has people who love him. Um, he could be in contact with them, you know, or, or have a relationship with them. When he's isolated, it's because he has chosen not to be in contact with them. The creature has isolation foisted upon him over and over again. Like first he's abandoned, then he reaches out and tries to create a relationship with a family and he's rejected. He tries to, to get, you know, a relationship with a creature like him through Victor and he's sort of, uh, and that's, that's, um, rejected. So, uh, and I think in a case like, like Cole, um, you know, who was an orphan, he didn't have a choice for a lot of his life, you know, about having a place. Jennifer didn't have a choice. Um, she didn't get to choose whether she had a relationship with her mother. You know what I mean? Like, right. that was broken by her mother, not by her. Um, but Deacon, and when we meet him, is choosing to just kind of emotionally isolate because it makes it easier to do these other things. And then as he kind of opens up and creates these you know, has these relationships, we can see him starting to make slightly different kinds of choices, you know? So I, th- I just think it's really, there's something like really profound there that I feel like both the novel and the show do in thinking about like how deeply love either enables or disables our capacity for being good, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's somebody else I was thinking about. Oh, I was thinking about Jennifer, too, because what, you know, what Olivia says to her is always so fascinating. You know, do you want to be a daughter again? And she says, I want to be a daughter. And I think it's so interesting that she doesn't, it isn't about like, do you want a mother? It's like, do you want to be a daughter? You know, like, Mm, I don't know, something about that, that like phrasing feels really significant to me. Like, it's not about. It's her place. It's focusing on her place. Exactly. Like, do you want to have a place? Do you want to have. Do you want to have a place where you belong? You know, do you want to have not like a mother, but like a daughter implies a family, you know, like, do you want to have like. Yeah, because she already had a mother and that yeah. didn't go well. That didn't go great. She so had a do you want to and that be acknowledged as being the daughter rather than just having these people who have titles above but, you. And then that's yeah. what she continually offers, whether it's the hyenas or the daughters. Yeah. Yeah. She's offering just a place a for place. people who don't have one. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't say, like, she, they call her mother, but she didn't say, like, hey, I'm your mother now. She's like, you're my daughters. You know, like, you have a place you belong. Um, so I, yeah, I think that sort of like sense of belongingness is really just seems like so fundamental to like everything. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, so fun. God, I miss English class. <laughs> Ah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, thank you for humoring my extremely long rantings about Frankenstein. Hey, they <laughs> put it in. It. It's awesome. And they put it in the episode. So. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's they what you said get. one word. We spent an hour. It's That's fine. That's what you get. <laughs> That's We're going to bring an English professor in and we haven't even gotten to Sonnet 19. We're going to save that one for the end. <laughs> this is our brand, people. This is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. Let's get into the episodes. Okay. So today we are discussing The Red Forest, written by Christopher Munfat and directed by Alex... Zazer, wait, nope, Zakrzewski, Zakrzewski, yeah, I don't know, Zakrzewski. Oh gosh, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that I butchered that. I even practiced it. Damn it. Aw. 
And Christopher Monfett is a writer that did a lot of episodes all throughout. Um, in addition to The Red Forest, Divine Move, Hyena, Enemy, Nurture, Legacy, Daughters, um, some classics. Um, and then we're discussing The Keys, written by Sean Tretta and directed by John Badham. Um, and as you guys heard on our last pod, Sean Tretta wrote Shonen, Primary, Lullaby, Blood Washed Away, Guardians, <laughs> Masks, Thief, The End, 45 RPM, D Glocka, and Demons. Or he had D Glocka has like a bunch of different credits and it's uh it's always confusing to me. But he's all a of those. busy guy in season four. Right? Jesus. <laughs> so, first up, the Red Forest. Holy mythology episode, and we meet Olivia. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so they, this is our first episode where we have a shift in time because of an event. And Jones flagged it for us in the last episode where she cited Godel and talked about a closed timeline loop. So they were flagging for us, oh, something happens, and in our show, it can result in a shift in time. Um, so I think it's interesting. I wanted to just first talk about really quickly, we've got Cole and Cassie before we get into like the, the actual plot of the episode, Cole and Cassie are both experiencing separate visions in this episode, um, which are both going to be as much for them as for us, these kind of memories of tomorrow, mm -hmm. right? So for Cole, if we take Cole first, it's a little unclear to me, like some of it is his memory as a child, but it's interesting that he's experiencing it because his brain is kind of going a little haywire um, because of the, the time shift and, and Jones tells him like human brains weren't made for this. Um, but we get the visions and, and it kind of gets breadcrumbed and increasing images of first the breaking glass of milk. Um, and that's sort of the first vision that we get this one, but then we get Cassie. It's like a very blurry version of Cassie's face. We get a barrel of a gun, um, which is interesting because Ethan, as a child, who's played by the same actor mm -hmm. <laughs> as, as Child Cole, is going to have like a very um, distinct image of his father with um, looking at a gun. Um, and it's also, I think it's supposed to be, you know, the original French short film that it's based on is a man who has, and, and this is also in the film 12 Monkeys, a man who has a memory as a child of watching a man get shot. And it turns out that he was witnessing his own death. Right. So it's interesting that they are kind of taking that idea of a memory that a child has and they're putting kind of their own spin on it with a son and a father and a father's death. But it's something that they continue to play with, both with Cole's memories as a child, but then Ethan's memories as a child. And it's kind of all this like father-son loop, um, unfortunately laced with like violence or the threat of violence. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so those are sort of just the like outside of the plot. We're getting these previews for what we're eventually going to see in Paradox um, when a grown-up Cole meets his father and his father is killed by the pallid man. So they're kind of already sewing these clues four episodes before we get, or five episodes before we get to Paradox. So I first we're going to take Cole at the time shifted facility. Um, and 
There's a couple just interesting, you know, Cole comes back in, obviously the West Seven's taken over and holy shit, they fake us out. And we think he's going in to talk to Deacon and it's Ramsey um, with an <laughs> eye patch. <laughs> I love, I love that they had like the classic of all, oh no, we're in a new timelines trope, a character with an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> But before we jump into that, there was one um, one of those mindfuck things on rewatch where this this episode when when Cole and Jones are trying to work out what's happened and Jones doesn't know who Cole is or what's going on. This is the first mention of a gin on the show mm-hmm. and Jones explains to Cole that it's a causality loop and she's fucking explaining it to a living causality loop <laughs> like, what the fuck <laughs> um, uh, in that scene there's another really fun nugget um, in the Baltimore newspaper so when they're looking at that slide of um, the murder of Cassie in the upper right hand corner if you freeze frame it there's an article about the Wexler uh, CIA leaks, mm-hmm. yeah. which is setting up what we're going to see in the next episode. So all along the way, like, I think, was it even in, like, episode two, they have sewn all of these little clues um, in the news, whether it's on TV or in the newspapers, leading up to that Wexler um, scene, which is then going to tell us, is gonna, then going to lead up to telling us things about Shonen and the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. So it's just, like, all these little, like like building a ladder of clues like all along the way. Um, so before we get into, if you are a casserole shipper, then you really love that scene. <laughs> <For Jones. laughs> because if there's anything that we know indicates a slow burn romance in a TV show, it is another character commenting on how important somebody is to another <laughs> character and then that person saying she is. So Second I think- only to somebody saying like, oh, hey, your relationship to so-and-so and the other person saying it's not like that. <laughs> right. Which Cole says that like seven All times. the goddamn time. Like, it's not like that. Dude, it's it's really like that. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> so in my heart of hearts, I believe that Jones is a casserole shipper. Um, so I thought it was, uh, other than just kind of the comedy, that the way Cole is able to convince Ramsey that it's really Cole is by alluding to their banging your mom jokes. Like, yeah. that's like... <laughs> The universal, like, no, dude, it's me. Remember, I joked about banging your mom. Um, <laughs> Brother. Brother yes. <laughs> but so these, this set of episodes with the um, the power, the right, right now, like, if they drain the the power core, then it's going to leave everyone. It's like foreshadowing what is going to be the problem in two episodes where they don't have enough power to bring Cole back. Um, But it's a mini moral dilemma where Ramsey is in the position of people are depending on him. And if he lets them use the power, then they're not going to have anything left for the people that are there. And Cole uses what Ramsey told him and Atari, like, whatever the world is, it doesn't have to be like this. And that ends up being what convinces Ramsey. But what I think is interesting about it is at this point, because Ramsey doesn't have a personal stake in the current 
timeline that they're in, he's willing to kind of do something that's going to erase all of that. And that is going to become a big problem for him (laughs) in about like two or three episodes. So I think there's some interesting like foreshadowing there of setting up what's going to be the difference for Ramsey in terms of how he evaluates these moral dilemmas. Um, But there's before uh, Cole gets sent back to try and fix Cassie being killed by the pallid man, there's two mind fucks. Well, I guess no, I already said one. So this is mind fuck number two. <laughs> Cole says, I'm going to fix this. I promise you. And Joan says, sacrifice is the only way. And we think, you know, at that point, she's referring to the cost to his health. But now when you think about sort of like the whole way that they're going to fix everything, Cole is going to fix everything and it will be sacrificing himself. Um, And mindfuck number two is at the end, Jones says to Cole, you and I are breaking the unwritten rules of the universe, but time is going to take what is owed. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I'm just going to yell what the fuck. So if anyone else says anything articulate. <laughs> I thought, I know that originally she's definitely talking to Cole, like in the literal sense about, you know, what he has to sacrifice or what it's going to cost him to continue doing these jumps. But I just, I found it interesting that there's also so much that Jones has had to sacrifice and it goes back, you know, to what we've been discussing all along about the emotional isolation, but mm-hmm. Jones has sacrificed herself oh, yeah. to this mission, you mm-hmm. know, completely. Like this is what consumes her. She's she knows that, you know, she's killed these men, she's done these things. She's so far in now, like it's just like double down, triple down, it doesn't even matter like anything that I have to do you know, I'm going to sacrifice. And then also I kind of just noted there that um, her losing Hannah, like that was a sacrifice that time made to Mm -hmm. continue all these loops. Yeah. Like when we get around to Lullaby, we sort of find out that that is, that is the sacrifice that, that like time demands of her. Like she has to lose Hannah. Exactly. Um, There's, there's literally no way that she can not. (laughs) Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is interesting. And, and I think, like, I think for me, the first time I was watching this, that line resonated when she said that, like, again, you know, sort of the, she was, she was speaking to Cole, but I also felt like it felt like a very sinister line to me the first time around because this is the Jones, you know, we just came off of a couple, a few episodes before discovering what had happened to the people that she put through the machine before Cole. Right. You know, so there's sort of the sacrifice um, of other people, uh, not, not her sacrificing something, right. But her sacrificing other people like human mm-hmm. sacrifice. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then this is right before the spearhead thing, you know? So mm-hmm. we're kind of like in the, in the sort of like the nadir of Jones, of the Jones who sees sacrifice as the only way, but who is kind of conceiving of sacrifice as like, again, like mostly sacrificing or, or very much sacrificing other people's lives. Um, and that there's a kind of like, there's a sacrifice, the, the implicitly there's a sacrifice to your soul for making those choices. And she's very aware of it, but, right. um, and like, I think one of the, one of like the neatest things about the, um, about season two Jones, as far as that's concerned, you know, like when they managed to delay the, um, the onset of the plague, when they sort of slightly alter that timeline, you know, is that like, I think 
the fact that the, that that Jones was a Jones who allowed herself to fall in love again, like that tells you how profoundly different um, mm-hmm. that Jones is, you know, like this is a Jones on the mend because she allowed herself to have a relationship. But yeah, so like that, like that sacrifice, I think to me, it felt like super like, oh God, <laughs> I was like, a lot of people are going to die, aren't they? When I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was right. Um, but yeah, but and it does seem like meaningful that in the end, the sacrifice that that time really demands is like, you have to sacrifice people that you love, experiences that are precious to you. You know, it's not about sh- shedding blood. It's about giving things up that are meaningful to you, um, ultimately. And it's yeah, and she doesn't yeah. have the choice to be uh, selfless either. Yeah. You don't get to sacrifice yourself. I'm yeah. going to demand that someone that you care about is sacrificed in order to push you. Exactly. And the yeah. Jones that we're talking to in this timeline – has utterly and completely failed, even though, you know, she did a lot of those same things. But, you know, now that West Seven has taken over, she has completely failed. And it sounds like she's got, like, a bitterness towards the one that Cole is referring to, you mm-hmm. know, when she says, like, ask the me who sent you. She knows, mm-hmm. like, about mm-hmm. this sacrifice nonsense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is also cool. Like, the, or a Jones, I think, you know, in this timeline, she also killed all those men in that machine, but there was no payoff. You know, this is a joke. Exactly. She can't even tell herself, like, well, at least we're doing it. You know what I mean? It's just like, I did all this and I got nothing. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's just so many layers. I mean, you know, if you're watching in the first season, a few episodes later, you're like, oh, so what they're setting up is letting us know, you know, Cole's starting to have these nosebleeds and it's setting up what's going to happen in Paradox, that there's a physical cost to everything he's doing. Um and you think it's just flagging that. And then when you go back and watch it, you're like, God, they're like talking about time as a character. <laughs> and yeah. they're talking about, you know, basically that time almost sits in judgment. Yeah, yeah. judgment of these characters and lets them, there's certain things that they have to do and, and taking what is owed to time in order to fix breaking the unwritten rules of the universe, but then it's going to let one slide <laughs> because yeah. of the sacrifice, right? <laughs> like, so yeah, there's just, there's a lot of layers <laughs> to that conversation. <laughs> um, so there's, I, what I loved is this to me, this episode was one of the first, like, just had a lot of humor. Yeah. And the most awkward bro road trip ever (laughs) (laughs) of Aaron and Cole. And (laughs) as an aside, if you're a, if you watch Nikita and you're a Nikita fan, Noah Bean played Ryan Fletcher and Aaron Stanford played Seymour Burkoff. Very different very different characters <laughs> than the ones they play. Extremely. Extremely. Like, as it makes you sit back and be like, wow, they're really good at what they do <laughs> because they're <laughs> very, very different. But they were phenomenal, like, together just in terms of, like, chemistry and they're, like, back and forth in Nikita. And so it's really fun that they're on this, like, team up. But instead of Burkoff being the one, like, back at the computer, now it's Aaron Stanford telling, like, the former CIA agent from Nikita how to hold a gun. It's just a big mindfuck if you're a Nikita (laughs) fan. But there's just so much humor that they kind of make um like the most out of the cold like what's 911 what's a <laughs> license plate and yet he he's able to like memorize it <laughs> immediately on site like 
I love the difference in Cole's lessons on how to use a gun. Like mm-hmm. with Cassie, he's like, so we're going to have several <laughs> sessions where I stand really physically close to you and put your hands on your hips. But with Aaron, he's like, dude, I mean, you just shoot it and you haul ass. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all Aaron's going to get. <laughs> I think um, that um, Cole, Cole sort of being able to like remembering the license plate from just glancing at it. I, that feels to me like it was like a little tiny, um, like a uh, reference to the movie 12 monkeys um, because the reason why they in, in the movie, the reason that they choose uh, James Cole to be the one to like go back and, and do what they want to do for him is because he's really good at memorizing information. Like they can tell oh, him stuff right. and he memory, he can like hold all this stuff in his head. Um, so that felt like a little sort of like nod to yeah, the movie yeah. James Cole. That's- such a good point yeah um and there's just a lot like they're good cop bad cop i mean it's an interesting character point for seeing like the kind of person like the lengths that cole is willing to go to um in terms of beating this man and you're and aaron's having to hold him back um although i think do they they ultimately do kill him right but they Uh, later get in the car and aaron's like we just killed a man I, fe- I feel like he was referring to the other guy because, like, the yeah, two guys the came in. One. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the other two, they actually did let that guy they go. They let that guy go. They killed the other guy. But it's like another, it's another good, like, reminder of right now who Cole is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of, and we, there's, there's another, like, east, like, sort of setting up the next episode. They find that, that photograph of the pottery with the monkeys on it, which is going to set up the whole. Chechnya pot in the next episode. Um, there's the phenomenal, like, no, I don't think you're Marty McFly. Thank <laughs> 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 you. That actually, that moment made me really wish that Aaron could have interacted with Jennifer at some point. You know, like, finally they would each have someone who would get their movie references. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron and Jennifer could have, like, sat around and watched 80s movies together. Damn exactly. it. <laughs> and they could do Cassie's hair. Like, yeah. it all works. Yeah. It all yeah. comes together. <laughs> they just be like, they like, Aaron would be doing Cassie's hair while they're all watching, like, you know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> this seems totally plausible to me. Yeah, I, it really does. Yeah. Somebody write us this uh, fanfic. um and then i mean also just makes you laugh because jennifer's gonna fucking dress cole up as marty mcfly in season three (laughs) somewhere somewhere in heaven aaron is like i see you baby good job (laughs) (laughs) um so we we got we actually already kind of the i think the most interesting interaction between aaron cole is that um the two wolves the cherokee parable but the one thing that we didn't is they, they're both talking about how Cassie is the one that for both of them feeds the love wolf, like mm-hmm. the good wolf. Yeah. And it's setting up this longer term. Th- there's a lot of things in this episode, but, and then particularly in the keys where I, I, I can see sort of where they're going with Cole and Cassie. They're almost like two moral ships passing in the night (laughs) so this is like the tragic thing about their whole tension and being at odds with each other in season two is that because it's because of cassie that like the good wolf is fed within cole Mm -hmm. and he's trying to find another way 
and her ship's passing in the night because her wolf that is willing to do whatever it takes is being fed by the events that are going to, you know, by being exposed to his world and also the events that are going to unfold sort of throughout the rest of the latter half of season one. And that's what's going to put them at odds. Yeah. But I think it kind of interestingly brings it back around to that I, that issue of like how how much is your ability to feed the good wolf, you know, sort of based on the circumstances of your life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like is is it is it really something like about innate about Cole or Cassie that she at that point is feeding the good wolf and he has more, you know, more been feeding the bad wolf. Um or is it about like what their lives have made them into up until now, you know, and the fact that they were sort of able as ships to pass, like they can sort of change course multiple times because their, their sort of experiences um, reshape them anew. Um, but I think it's interesting too, that like ultimately, like when you have a relationship with someone, like when you love someone, like they love each other, when one of them is drifting, that relationship can pull them back. You know, like you, you have someone who can say like, Hey, you know, like, let me remind you of what's important. Let me remind you of what you're capable of, you know? Yeah. So long story short, you know, um, as their circumstances change, each of their ability to feed the love wolf sort of waxes and wanes, but then their love for each other always pulls them back and makes them more able to feed the love wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> I really want a I'm t-shirt now. That, a t-shirt. I just t-shirt yeah, the love exactly. wolf. <laughs> Feed the love wolf. <laughs> and it's just like a, like, a, like a really mean looking wolf, but has like hearts for eyes. <laughs> I want a wolf now. <laughs> All right. Should we? So this episode is called The Red Forest mm-hmm. and we meet Olivia. Um, so at this point, she is only known as the striking woman, <laughs> which and is striking. She is indeed. Indeed. So we meet the striking woman. <laughs> She's known to us at this point. And I just want to take a moment because the first thing she is the striking woman. But God, does Allison Down just have the greatest voice? Like she really when does. they call it the voice for NPR, it's just... <laughs> I know that in this show, it's not good when she's talking to you in a soothing way, but I feel like I would listen to like a meditation. (laughs) I mean, like, I feel like that's why it's really effective, you know, like you 100% understand why Cassie just kind of sinks into that, into her sort of clutches into that hallucination. Cause like, how could you not, you know, like it's hard not to, even when you haven't been drugged. (laughs) (laughs) And then, then same with Jennifer later. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, like if she was, if you didn't know her, you know, like if you didn't have all of the like non-diegetic music in the background to tell you that she's evil. <laughs> It'd be so easy to be, just be like, oh, wow, you're so soothing. Yeah. She just has like really great accessories and is like killing the like, it's not even business casual. It's like the professional. Yeah. <laughs> she's professional always look. in like yeah. super high spike heels, which to me is just like. That means you are a badass who is to be feared because you, because you live every day being like, I am in constant pain and that's how I like it. <laughs> that's pretty much her arc. Pretty much, yeah. So this, this is the first time that we hear her saying – the witness has spoken and the witness has said that Cassie is too important and she's fucking talking about herself. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so weird to watch her be like, no, the witness has spoken. And it's like, I feel you know, like she doesn't know that it's her. But on another level, I feel like Olivia would not, you know, like follow so implicitly the commands of anyone but her. So it's so fitting that it is her. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So turning to the Red Forest, so this is obviously like an iconic scene for the show and crazy now to watch. You know, I think initially when you were watching it, just the the way it's sort of like the filter that they use and the images. I mean, the audience feels like like we are hallucinating. But now watching it for the first time, knowing that this is a setup for what we're going to see in Blood Washed Away... It's crazy. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. it's interesting because it, like Coles, like Coles is like his visions about what happens in paradox, the red forest gets unfolded for us like piece by piece. So, you know, first we, mm-hmm. we hear that you're walking through the red forest, the grass is tall, and then it builds through the episode where we hear the rest of the, it has just rained, you've been there before, you see a man go to him, and they kind of give it to us piece by piece. Um, and, you know, I think we mentioned before that it's um, it's a memory of tomorrow for the audience as much as it is for Cassie, because we're experiencing all of this, like, from her point of view. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that earlier, though, and I, I think I typed, well, yeah, obviously I typed this at the end, like, she's talking about, you know, or Olivia mentions it's a memory tomorrow, and, like, in theory, from a, you know, from Cassie's timeline perspective, like, yes, it's something that happens to her in the future, but it happens in 59, or 58, or, you know, wherever, it happens yeah. in the 50s, so it actually is in the past. Right. It- yeah. <laughs> I love making her do that. It's a memory of tomorrow that has already happened. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> right, because it's like her tomorrow, but it's really just remembering the past. To quote uh, the great Doc Brown, you're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. <laughs> 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 right. I was just going to say, can I be the resident Jennifer with the uh, Back to the Future references? Uh, <laughs> Please. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Um, so since this is the first time that we see the vision of the Red Forest, <laughs> I just wanted to talk a little bit about all of the different meanings that this image will take on throughout the show. So as of right now, and through sort of the mid point of season two, where the witness actually enters Cassie's consciousness, this is like a terrifying, like invasion of her mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And like her agency and every, like it is, this is where that, that this is where that starts and it's going to put Cassie on a pretty dark path in season two. And when you watch her be like force fed the tea and this it's the, you know, the plague mask appears to her at the end of sort of unfolding of all these visions. This is the beginning of that story of this entity of the witness, like invading her mind and ultimately like her body. And it's, it, that's how it starts out. It also 
is a representation of a actual physical place that will be her home, which is a a happy place, right? It's like where she finds Cole, where they are in love, where they conceive a child. In season three, it's the safe place they will go to, to bring their son there, trying to save his soul. Um, So that's one, that's the second level. The third level is it, if it's a symbolic of, you know, and, and we see around it, the red forest, it is also a symbol of her temptation. I, I mean, and depending on how you view, like what your take is on what she does at the end of the series, it either is the temptation that she like submits to and accepts the red forest. And this is like where it all begins, or yes. it's just symbolic. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or <laughs> I'm just laying it all. I'm just laying it all out. Um, it's also symbolic of, or, or instead in the alternative, it's symbolic of what is going to be her character's like ultimate temptation, right? Of everything right. that the red forest represents um, in the story of trying to get away from like something that is central to the human experience, just which is mortality. Um, And then also just sort of like the blood washed away is, you know, like going to like Shakespeare and so common, like in literature and so, so many things that we've watched, like trying to wash blood away, thinking about things that you've done, like that you regret and redemption. There's just so much, so many layers and so many things to unpack about what this vision that we're first presented with in this episode and how many different meanings it will, it will take on like throughout the series. Mm -hmm. This vision is terrifying too, in a way, because even though we ultimately know, you know, at the end of of season two, that it pays off that, you know, there's a man go to him, know him. um, It doesn't say that she does know him, right? It's like instructing her to know him. Yeah. So, and it's weird because even though now we know it's Cole, there's the distortion and, like, the bouncing around and the lack of continuity between this, like, other character that you're seeing. And it seems like it's the witness. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced that it's not both. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like, is, is the house in the Red Forest when she drinks the tea? I mean... I don't know. I'm not, I guess I'm not totally sure that they are the exact same thing. Like there's overlap. They're like, but it's more like, um, uh, like a palimpsest, uh, like, do you guys know what a palimpsest is? Um, so it's, uh, a palimpsest is so like used to be when you would write on parchment, um, when, if you erased in order to erase something, you would scrape the ink off. So uh, a palimpsest is basically a text where, like, there's layers of the imprint of writings of things that have been erased, like, one on top of the other. Mm. So there's, like, this still the imprint of the thing that's been written and erased, and then the thing that's been written over it. That's a palimpsest. So it's almost more like a palimpsest. It's like the two, like, this house and the house where she's happy. Um, they're not, like, they're not, this, they are the same, but they aren't the same. They're more, like, layered on top of each other. And so I wonder if the, like, person in that vision, like, that is the witness, but it's almost like the memory of tomorrow, the happy memory is being hijacked. Do you know what I mean? Like, like they're taking that memory and they're layering it into the Red Forest and they're saying that's where this memory exists. But mm. does it really? You know what I mean? Right. Like, it doesn't, like, it's hers. That's her memory. That's her experience. But it's kind of being, like, co-opted. By um, by the witness and by the red forest and and by Olivia and so I mean which is another kind of violence you know like they're taking this thing that's hers and they're sort of like 
turning it into something. Yeah, yeah, distorting it and turning it into something else. Right, um, and the and the other thing is, regardless of how you think the story ends, that you know that it is a memory of hers. It is either what we see at the end is the memory of that time in 1959 is the perpetual now that she wants to live in, or if time is reset and the epilogue that we see is our reset reality and not the red forest, Cassie still, when she finds the house on the internet, decides that that, you know, it's almost like her keys, right? Like it's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. the place she's going to go to, even if Cole's not there, that is her, that is her place where she could be happy, where she chooses to go like as a refuge. Yeah. Um, so either, either way. Right. And, 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 but both of those are tied to the memory of what happened in 1959. Right. Right. And then, and the sort of like, even in the reset reality, the kind of, um, the echo, the, 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 the impression of that erased experience is still written onto that place, you know? So it's like something, something lingers, you know what I mean? Like there's this, this place is not one thing or another. It's all these things layered into each other. Um, Yeah. Especially when you think of the house, like in the context, I, we know early on, you know, even from the last couple of episodes, like even from the pallid man saying, you know, him, like they think that the witness is Ethan, just like we're led yeah. to think, you know, mm-hmm. for all of season three. So in a way, this house in the, um, you know, the representation of all the visions, which they're not actually at the house, right? I mean, right. obviously, yeah. it's just in the vision. This is like a sort of like Mecca because this is the birthplace of their savior, like their leader, mm-hmm. their, you know, the beginning of their cult, faith, whatever you want to call it. So this house is important to much, much more than Cassie in that regard. Yeah. Right. And if there's something to me, like when I, when, when we thought that Ethan was the witness, there was something so poignant about the fact that he chose that place as the sort of like the location that he would appear as, as his sort of like home is the place where he resided or whatever, mm-hmm. um, in this realm. Um, and it's not really clear, like, once we figure out that, that Olivia is the witness, like, if she chose that place or, and maybe she doesn't even know, but like, but Ethan is obviously like a piece of it, but there's something like really sort of pointed about like, about Ethan kind of recognizing and wanting to like honor the fact that that is his origin, you know, like, if there's a place in the world where he belongs, it's in that place, you know, and it's also right. the place mm-hmm. in the world where Cassie feels like she belongs. Like, like it represents family to both of them, interestingly. And so it's, there's a kind of irony to the fact that this is, turns out when the witness turns out to be Olivia, that she's co-opted this memory, that she's co-opted this place. It doesn't represent memory to her. It represents something else, you know, but she's kind of like piggybacking on its significant to, significance to these other people, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, does everyone have a box of tissues close to them? Because we're about to delve into, I feel like, even the episode title. We're about <laughs> to talk about much. the keys. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, even, like, the episode opens and you need, you need, like, a fucking feels disclaimer because it's, like, Cole talking about the keys. And now you're just like, fuck! <laughs> I press play and it says the keys. And then the episode opens with Cole saying the keys with, like, a series of images. And it's just, like, a feels attack from, like, the opening. Um, what, <laughs> what I love about <laughs> – if, if, if I could say, like, the structure of this 
episode as like symbolic of what this show does to us emotionally. Like not like Cole dies in this episode, but they make us experience it twice. (laughs) 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 Just to like wring the maximum amount of like angst and pain is we have to like experience his death as it's like actually happening when it blows up in Chechnya. But then at the end of the episode, we have to like experience it again (laughs) because, right? Because Cole doesn't know he's dying, but Cassie's like getting this like second chance at saying goodbye, but can't say it's a goodbye. And it's just like a fucking angst, like, my God, the way they torture us. It should have been like a flag for like, what was to come? <laughs> um, so basically, I mean, the whole like Chechnya and blowing up plot, like it's fun, sort of like on the first watch, but like uh, the only th- real thing, like I had in terms of like the actual like CIA like subplot, other than again, if you're a Nikita fan, the idea that this is some sort of like black op the CIA is running is the entire like plot of Nikita where there's this this agency division that does shady shit exactly like this, like using a virus (laughs) to like assassinate like rogue CIA agents. And the guy who plays the the head of which is 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 the head of division in Nikita. So like there's this whole like if you also watch Nikita mindfuck aspect to of it. But that's all that I will say about that. Um I think it's interesting that the episode opens And Cassie, like, if someone had just poured tea down my throat, I don't think I would be back at home making tea. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know what's going to make me feel better after this traumatic experience? A nice hot cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) But what I thought was so – they're so interesting that, like, I don't know what is intentional or what's not in terms of, like, the way that they edited things and then later what they did in 212. But – you have Cassie re-experiencing her visions um, while she's making the tea. And then the voiceover that we get again from Olivia is, you've been there before. And then, almost like a sitcom, the door opens and Cole walks in. <laughs> and you're like, ah, right? Like, And now that you know what that whole vision is about, you're like, huh, I wonder if they did that on purpose or if that's just yeah. kind of like accidental like foreshadowing. But the whole – she burns herself and Cole at the sink tending to the wound with the water is the re- is a reversal of like the reversal is going to happen in 212 where Cole cuts himself and Cassie's cleaning his hand and the whole blood washed away is her at the sink washing like washing the wound in the sink and mm-hmm. so it's the whole like inverse of what happens in this episode which is kind of like a fun parallel um did you guys have anything to add to that or should we delve into Casserole's second date? I have another I have one I have one very small thing to add, which is that both another another sort of parallel between this episode and um Blood Washed Away is that um oh I guess it's really the next episode. They're both episodes in which I really am very concerned about whether or not Cole has his tetanus booster updated. <laughs> um, because because he like pulls like a nail out of a board to dig the bullet out of his leg, um, and then he cuts with alcohol. Aaron, it's fine. <laughs> and then he cuts himself on an axe, and like Cassie, the doctor's just like, ah, oh, whatever. We'll just like wash it out with water. You're fine. So um, I'm very He's immune about- to a world-ending plague, but he gets killed by tetanus. <laughs> doesn't mean look just because you're immune to one disease doesn't mean that's like, my and- point. You're not gonna get lockjaw. <laughs> yeah. 
I worry about the status of everyone's vaccinations. <laughs> oh my god, the amount of injuries that like Aaron Stanford had to portray, like bamboo shoots going through the fingernail, <laughs> digging a bullet out of your leg with a fucking nail. Like, oh my god, it's so cringing. Ah, totally wet. Yeah. It's hot. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully at the foster, what it's no, his his tenure booster's up. So yeah. I mean, like he doesn't get lockjaw, right? So like he must <laughs> Jones must be putting like the tetanus pertussis like booster in with the other shots that she gives him. For sure. <laughs> That's and he the gets second. them while Aaron's brushing his hair. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Here you go, sweetie. <laughs> this is for the next time you have to dig a bullet out of your leg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I think that was like a good way to laugh before we talk about Casserole's second date. <laughs> <laughs> I figured we needed the palate cleanser, you know, like so we don't get too deep in our feels too fast. Oh, I man. do also want to point out, I know you guys are suckers for the uh, – Wound tending trope. Indeed. I was going to say another <laughs> another sort of classic like, hey, they're going to be romantic uh, TV trope is one person tending another's wound, often often hand wounds, although um, like wounds in the side of the back are very common too. That's actually how I knew that in like the flashbacks, Cole and Max were going to be a thing because she sewed up his wound. So I was like, oh, they're going to make out. And then they did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right we've we've actually checked a bunch of tropes right we've got teaching how to use a weapon Uh uh-huh she's a they're important to you they must be important you know she is she is uh it's not like that (laughs) it is exactly like that wound tending oh and then and then this episode between this episode and Cassie at the CDC, we get to watch each each of their reactions to the I mean, they push it a little bit far. Like usually in TV shows, it's you watch them react to the potential love interest be like being in mortal danger. This mm-hmm. show is just like, fuck that. We're gonna actually kill them. Like yeah. <laughs> you're going to experience them being dead over and over and over. <laughs> and then you're both gonna watch them like showing extreme, like soul-crushing every form of grief that you could and we're gonna yeah. make you watch both of them cry sometimes more than once and in this episode like we're gonna make you experience Cassie dying him twice like mm-hmm. just for fun mm-hmm. yeah we've checked a lot of right like yes. they had they had their like slow burn box checking all I mean at this point like with this yep. many tropes it's like it's like a fast slow burn <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and then, then the thing with tro- and the yeah. thing with tropes though is mm-hmm. tropes are tropes because they work Right? Absolutely. Like there's signals totally. there's signals to us. Yeah. Oh, this is what's going on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Totally. And especially I think in a show like this where they didn't have a huge amount of time in terms of like just like episode order. You know what I mean? Like how many episodes they had. They didn't have a huge amount of time to devote to just showing the two of them like together, you know, like outside of the boundaries of missions or whatever. So like these are also very handy kind of shorthands to the audience to say like Hey, here's how these two people are feeling about each other right now, you know, like, um, so yeah. And another one, I mean, I think another trope is definitely dancing. Yeah, for like sure. anytime two characters slow dance together. Right. Um, and so then this show says, 
So we're going to take dancing and we're going to raise you. And she's going <laughs> to teach him how to dance. <laughs> Just exactly. To like, right? <laughs> While teaching him another weapon altogether. While yeah. he's contemplating his own mortality and the limited amount of time he has with this precious person, they're going to dance. <laughs> oh, man. Why don't we just get the co- the comedic stuff out of the way before we sink into our pit of feels? Okay. <clears throat> so we have our- It'll happen have, naturally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have our running segment of Cole experiencing uh, new food and drink. And yep. he- We've laughed about it before, but this is the iconic Tandoori skewers. <laughs> where you're just going to take all- It's like, I mean, I have sometimes felt that way out of party for sure where you're just like I just want to take all of the appetizers off of the plate and like walk (laughs) away with them well especially at events like that where you're like you surely paid to get in you know it's like you know what I'm gonna make your damn past hors d'oeuvres into my dinner because like (laughs) I paid and I'm like to get in here so I'm gonna eat as many tandoori skewers as I need to eat until I'm full yeah, and and the, uh, everyone's reactions to it are so great. Like the waiter's face, and then when Cassie walks up, it's 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 kind of fun because at the beginning of the sh- at the beginning of the season, she was more shocked, and now it's more like, oh, he's doing that adorable thing where he eats food really <laughs> awkwardly in public. <laughs> like, and so, it's almost like. Yeah, let me ask you this: Do you think that Cole really didn't realize that he was only supposed to take one, or was he just like, "Fuck it, you're handing me a plate. I'm going to take as many as I want." Oh, I don't think he knew. Yeah. Okay. Like, I thought he was, you know, like, he's offering me this platter. Like, this is mine. Because he doesn't know how to eat it. Mm, <laughs> yeah, like, he's holding yeah. all of the skewers at once. Almost <laughs> and, like, like, trying to, like, how do Frank- I put these all like, in? Like, cotton oh. candy. <laughs> Wait, can yeah. I bring it? Uh, can I bring it back to Frankenstein? He's, like, yes. putting them together as one giant skewer. <laughs> 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 oh, the, my other little, my all time, my most favorite comedic moment in this episode, though, is when Cole is standing be- uh, behind the Tyrannosaurus Rex head, and the like tour guide <laughs> lady is, you know, giving this the speech about like this, this like this guy saw his world change around him, and then the, like the look on Cole's face, just like that like look of like perplexity on his face, is just like. That was very well done, you guys. I, I very much appreciate that little piece of dramatic irony. <laughs> <laughs> Where, like, a dinosaur is Cole's spirit animal. Yeah, <laughs> like- totally. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I love the, like, the art <laughs> where he wants to yeah. tell, you know, he's talking about how, like, the museum's burnt, you know, like, people looted them. And then you just have him, like, try and touch it. And she's like, and she's like you can't touch the art. And they're like, he's like, that's bullshit. Like, that's my life every day when I take my kids to a museum. <laughs> I'm trying to, like, touch shit. And me being like, you can't touch. You can't touch the art. <laughs> In this scene... I don't know if it's reading too much into it to say they're starting to be like, even though this is a moment of connection and it's obviously like, it's like these arms of mine is on the word of the witness when Cassie is contemplating her choice, like, right. And thinking back on her memories that she thinks back on this moment. Um, so it's like a seminal moment in their relationship where they're connecting and with Cole saying like, let's just be us for a moment. Um, but it's also Cassie is very – she's starting to be very, like – she always is focused on the big, like, the big picture. But she's – in this moment, she is very mission-focused. 
And for Cole, you're watching like all of these senses coming alive, right? Like mm-hmm. taste and art and music. And you have what is quite a poignant now on rewatch in terms of the theme of trying to enjoy the present and be in the now. When he's like, let's just be us. Like, like let's just be here, like here in this mm-hmm. moment. Mm. It's just incredibly poignant. Right. I mean, yeah. just think not only not only because of like what's happening to him as a character where it's almost like he's coming alive as a person with his senses and feelings. Right. But also just in thinking about the the larger themes of the show of trying to enjoy the present. And Cassie's like, no, we need to do this. We need to do this. And he's like, can we just like we're dressed up and I like stole Aaron's tux and we're at this great party. <laughs> can we just like enjoy it? Um, there's just well, I also point- think. I think that, like, it's part of the reason why he's having this moment is, you know, then is because Jones just told him, basically, your days are numbered. You know, like, you only have, you don't have any jumps left and you're, and this is, and doing this is going to kill you. So he's like, he's so, like, so profoundly aware of how precious every sort of sensory experience is because he's aware that he's not going to get that many more, you know, and he's aware of how precious every moment with Cassie is because he's aware that he's not going to get that many more. And I think um, like that feels so like important again, like you're saying to kind of like the larger themes of the show, because like, because what, you know, what, what gives this, this moment, this, dance these arms of arms of mine what makes it mean so much what makes it such a such a an important profound meaningful moment is death it's the fact that time keeps moving and human beings are mortal and a moment is not forever you know what i mean like so like that moment becomes irrelevant without the fact of death um and i think that's like you know in terms of thinking about like what's so wrong with the red forest, you know, like what's so wrong with just like living in a, in a perpetual now, especially if you're living in a perfect moment. And it's like, it's kind of the question of like, is, is there any, can there be any such thing as a perfect moment or a moment of perfect happiness in when there isn't time? Is there any such thing as a perfect moment when you're immortal, when you, when death, when mortality doesn't exist, you know, like (laughs) does, is death like, like, like Jennifer says, you know, Time needs us and we need time, but is time the thing that gives anything its meaning at all? Yeah. Right, because we love harder. Yeah. 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 It's just really, I mean, they're so, I mean, maybe this is sort of where they started playing around with these ideas. But now when you go back and watch it, it's just really, there's so much depth to it. And it's, it's not just sort of about the like kind of fleeting moment and people feeling things and things that you on the first watch just thematically now it's like really sort of the first time that we're being introduced to this idea of trying to live in the moment and time fleeting and Mm -hmm. yeah yeah just on top of the fact that then they fucking play these arms of mine which is now (laughs) like (laughs) oh god like if otis redding ever intended for us to just basically start sobbing when we heard that song I mean, it's a pretty sad song, but if we can jump in really quickly, there is kind of a mythology piece that stretches all the way through the fourth season with this piece of pottery when they talk, um, when Cassie kind of leaves Cole looking like a sad, 
I was going to say sad puppy dog, but I guess like Jennifer's claim that they're otterized, but he just looks like a sad puppy on the dance floor. But when she goes over to the professor and the professor kind of fills her in that the symbol of the monkey, he attributes the pottery to the Druze religion and that the Druze religion is secretive. Like, and if you kind of go down a rabbit hole about it, he says like the God, the professor says God and man the pact of time's custodian. And I don't know, I'm totally out of my element here. I don't know more than like what Wikipedia would tell me about the Druze religion. <laughs> but that it's sent Welcome like, to my uh, life. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a set like the central concept is this idea of a pact of the time custodian, which I think is interesting when you think about what the primaries are, like mm-hmm. as the mythology unfolds in throughout the show. But also All the way in season four, well, actually, in this episode, we see the monkey symbol on the man's arm, who's the sniper, once Cole goes to Chechnya. Mm -hmm. The show is going to flash back to that that man's tattoo and the monkey tattoo when um, we're in Demons and we're introduced to Andrews, whose name comes from Druze, like the Druze religion, and sort of that the origin of the 12 monkeys was in Chechnya with this Druze religion, and they're like the countervailing force to the primaries. Mm. So it's just like a little nugget right now, but like these little pieces with the Druze religion and Chechnya are going to sort of like blossom and just get the ideas much bigger sort of as the mythology of primaries versus army of the 12 monkeys unfolds all the way through the end of season. Hmm. All those kind of hints start in this episode. I mean, if we're just going to cover other little Easter eggs, when Cole talks to Wexler, Wexler tells him he knows about the army of the 12 monkeys because they've been monitored by the CIA. He talks about um, them popping up in 1987 in Tokyo at the white dragon. And so that's sort of setting the table for the Ramsey and Cole showdown um, in the episode coming up in Shonen. Um, But one of the interesting things is Wexler says um, death, time, rebirth, monkeys, like the hours on a clock. And I think that actually is something – so he's repeating that sort of in the context of his knowledge of the army of the 12 monkeys. But that's something that actually Ethan says as a boy, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. how they get their name. Yeah, yeah. It made me wonder if Wexler was primary when I'm hearing it again. Yeah, I I sort of wondered if – like was that in the report that he read? Like is he just repeating something that he remembers reading? Like this is something that that the 12 monkeys say. But um, he didn't seem to be primary, but it does sort of make you, like, makes you wonder. I think, like, there is something really interesting about this, the, this, what Wexler says to Cole about um, when Cole kind of tells him what the plot is, and Wexler kind of gets into it, right? Like, where Wexler's, like, chaos and then order, you know, yeah, like... You, maybe that's what we need. Yeah, like, I think it's, like, this chilling moment. I don't, I didn't really, I don't really get the feeling that he is or was a part of it, but it's more just a peek at like, this is the kind of person to whom that ideology like would appeal, you know, mm-hmm. like that there are people out in the world who would hear about this. And instead of reacting in horror would be like, you know what? Yeah. Seems like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. He's supposed to be appalled. And he's like, really? That's a, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. He's like, like yeah, fine. you know, like this, this is logical to me. This makes sense. Um, and it, but it does come from like a very deep, for Wexler at least, a kind of very deep, um, misanthropic 
streak, you know, where he's just kind of come to the conclusion that like, people are bad, the world is bad, you know, that there's no and the only way to fix it is just to kind of like, etch a sketch everything and start over. Um, Which is, I guess, yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of, I mean, at the time, and I guess ultimately it proved to be a red herring. As a viewer, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe this is the motivation for the people who want a plague, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's also – it's an interesting character moment for Cole because Wexler says to him, right, I never thought I would meet anyone more nihilistic than me. And Mm -hmm. it hits you when you watch Cole's face, you know, this is the same man who is just experiencing – like kind of falling in love with like the senses and the world and art and music and, and taste and, you know, probably starting to fall in love. And I think in that moment, like nothing could be further from the truth, right? Like Mm -hmm. Cole is actually moving away. Like it's particularly in this episode, he's moving away from that kind of like, fuck it, let's just reset all of it because I'm horrible and the world is horrible. And he's starting to actually live for things. So it's kind of interesting the way that line lands. At least I was sitting there being like, yeah, I don't think that that I don't think that that's true anymore. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I mean, I don't think it's true either. And I think because the like the whole point of Cole's, you know, like suicide mission, like yeah, Cole wants to erase himself. Like his goal is I think Cole at this point is sort of concluded. He even says in this episode, right? He says, I have it coming. Like mm-hmm. Cole at this point has just concluded, like, I'm I'm trash, you know, like I'm bad. I've done bad shit. There's no coming back for me. So, like, for Cole, I think for Cole, he's like, let's just like wipe this out. Let's like erase this version of me and start over. But but all oh, the whole point of that sacrifice is the idea that 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 this really, that this sort of like irredeemable as he seems to feel version of him is gone, but in its place is the, you know, the world is, is a world full of people that is inherently better, you know, that's like full of hope and of good. And maybe he could be, what does he say? Like a better person in a better place. Um, And that's like the opposite of nihilism, you know? I just wondered if he maybe didn't know what the word meant. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Completely possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean the interest I mean the interesting thing though is even if he's still thinking and we'll and we're about to get to that conversation at the end, like a better version of me, it's this version of Cole that's starting to live. And that's, that's true. the one that yeah, yeah, he, yeah. right that that is going to be that is what's going to be so tragic when we think that he's, you know, not only is he being erased forever, but that you know, when he says basically like we lived a lifetime together, like Cole's like life in terms of experiencing like happiness, um, you know, he had very short time with his father. It's all starting now. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, you know, we, they keep telling us, you know, um, he's going to be erased. <laughs> and at the same time, we're watching this man who's like starting to come to life, particularly mm-hmm. in this episode. Yeah, yeah. So we watch Cassie basically like completely gutted and you have this like the way that they like play with – there's a lot of things that they kind of play with just like with the structure of the way the plot unfolds in Chechnya where we're basically in Cassie's shoes uh, in her point of view where she's getting a phone call and it's like 
wait a minute, what do you mean I talked to you like the day before and what's happening? But the way they kind of like maximize the feels like we were saying before is we watch her get the answer, the keys first. And now that's the second time that the audience is hearing that. Mm-hmm. And then we like go to the scene at the end of the episode, which is just like gutting now. <laughs> like mm-hmm. watching her have to not tell him what's going to happen to him and say goodbye. The scene is just like really tough to watch. It's like a really emotional scene to watch, like particularly now. But she asks him this now kind of really interesting question when you think about the end what do you think will happen when this is over what happens to you and cole says i don't know i wind up a better me in a better place and then she asks him what do you think that looks like and you know we hear again what she heard before with the keys and now when you think about the end of the show (laughs) and he does end up that better version of him, but that's the better version that he has earned along the way. Mm-hmm. Like not a reset Cole, but the Cole who started to make choices and started to love people. And that is the better version, but it's the version, you know, it, it isn't a function of like a reset button. It's a function of the of the choices he makes. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. All along what we've watched. The last one I'm ever going to be. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh God. Oh God. Oh, beep. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That would take just a second to land. She'll be like, yeah, yeah, and then, uh. (laughs) The slow motion one. Um, But, you know, it's interesting also because the show plays with both in sort of with our own expectations, right? Like Cole's envisioning the keys as this like perfect place and and, like a paradise. And the show kind of plays with that. Like, Like they give us that glimpse where he's talking in season four and he's saying, you know, I think I saw something and, you know, it felt good when I was there. And you're like, wow, is he, did he get like, as he was dying, did he get a flash of the afterlife? Um, you know, and then Jennifer like basically calls us out on thinking that when she's like, well, it's not heaven. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just, you know, this conversation, like in addition to kind of like the heart wrenching making us watch Cassie, like particularly when she says goodbye instead of see you soon, it's just like such a punch in the stomach. For some reason, the thing that always gets me is that she went out and got him a cheeseburger. Like, I don't know why. Like, (laughs) she went out and bought him his last meal, and she knew that if he knew it was his last meal, he would want a cheeseburger. Like, it just, like... Because he literally was like, what's the occasion? Because she had it waiting for him. Yeah. And and she's like, oh, nothing. Like, ugh. Just kills me. Right. And he's being like, he's being like, you know, like, Aaron, like, good job. Like, and he's so, like, gung And, oh, it's just, like... They ring it for like the maximum, like they really do. Yeah. It's Ugh. so cool. Thought it was time to clean up and just look into more leads, you know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so sad. Her like, you know, can we just pour one out for Cassie's conspiracy board? It's <laughs> <Just> got <laughs> taken down. <laughs> I was so mad at Aaron for like just unceremoniously being like, "Well, we're just going to toss all this." I'm like, man. She worked hard on that. <laughs> well, Aaron's perpetually mad at Aaron. Well, we'll we'll get to Aaron Marker. Uh, I'll I'll play I'll play devil's advocate on Aaron Marker. I think Aaron Marker is basically our preview of what anyone any of these characters do in the show. And he's trying to take he's you know it's it's it is selfish, but he's basically cutting his losses and trying to take care of the person he loves, which is what Ramsey does. It's what a lot of people yeah. do. In the show. I would actually play devil's advocate for Aaron Marker as well. I think they do a good job. I mean, like he makes you know the wrong choices and he fucks everything up, but it's very 
I understand why. It is very, given what he knows and, you know, it's, it is, uh, Mostly sympathetic, except for times like this where he just kind of like waltzes in and is like, "Well, we're just gonna get rid of the stuff." This guy yeah, but just dude, it's, yeah, but like uh, 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 honestly, like totally human. He knows, well, like Cat, you know, Cassie just like went on a date with a dude wearing his tux, so he's like, "Yeah." So is it time to throw that guy's photo in the trash? Awesome, true, let's true. do that. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But I, since I am on on the the side of casserole, I'm also like, "You dick." <laughs> <laughs> He's also just, he's not very uh, conscientious of nor respectful of Cassie's agency. I mean, that that's really, kind of yeah, me. that's really That's his thing. greatest flaw, right? Yeah, like, for sure. His, right? I, mean, I understand that, why that. you want to be in, like, I want to go through my rival's picture, but, like, picture? Picture. But um, also, but I mean, like, yeah, but on the other hand, like, he knows how distraught she is, you know? So for that, he's just going to, like, blowing in their life. Wow, we just got to get rid of this stuff. It's like, give her a moment to mourn, you know? Like, read the room, dude. <laughs> you right. work in the senate like you're you're supposedly a politician you should be way better at reading the room than this <laughs> i don't think the current senate's a great example of that <laughs> i said that and then immediately i was like ah! pull it back pull it back maybe i'm very wrong about read that. the country Aaron. Read Jesus. The- i'm sorry <laughs> I don't want to read the country. It's too depressing. <laughs> I can, but I, I can, to, but I can also see that, like, oh my god, this whole conspiracy and all of this has torn apart this person I love. Has torn apart her life. Has mm-hmm. has made her question her sanity. It is finally over, and it's time to move on. And I can see that kind of like misplaced but well intentioned. Like it's over, right? So like, yeah. let's make it over. Can I please just say, though, and I I wasn't thinking about this in that context, but as someone with a mental illness, that is actually super frustrating as well. Yeah. No, I mean, the way- Like, you're good now, right? Okay, cool. Like, you're cured. Let's go. Like, yay, everyone move on. Where you're like, um, I'm still traumatized. I'm going to need you to, like, chill out for a second. The whole story, you know, we talked about this in the Cassandra Complex episode, but the the whole story that we get to see- of Cassie dealing with the trauma and not being believed and the way the people around her handle it. Like it was some pretty insightful writing where the focus was like firmly on her. You understood the point of view of the people that were talking to her, but, but the focus is always firmly on Cassie and how that makes her feel. Mm-hmm. And that's just not always the case in television shows and particularly with female characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is that moment at the end of the Red Forest, you know, where Aaron says, you know, he basically says, like, he apologizes, like, I'm sorry, I didn't believe you. And mm-hmm. you see how much that means to her. And I think uh, they oh, do a really nice heart. job. Yeah, like, but they do a really nice job of sort of allowing Cassie to, like, honoring all of the very complicated emotions that she's going through, you know, and sort of like, <laughs> um, and, and being able to like, even in a moment, even in a moment where like she and Aaron are very much like on the same side and very bonded, like have a moment that kind of recognizes like him, just, just him refusing to believe her was a betrayal, you know, like this is something that needs to be apologized for. And that usually doesn't happen in TV, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, casserole. <laughs> it is. I would. I will say this though. It is difficult to side with him, even though, even if you can understand his motivations, which I, th- I think they're very clear in it, and it is easy to do so in theory. But we have too much information 
Oh, for to, sure. You know, Absolutely. to yeah, like yeah. really get um, on his side in that regard. We're just like, but we know she's right and you're the worst. Like, you need to believe her. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Thank, God, thank God they like cast Noah Bean, who's adorable, because that was a tough, <laughs> that was is. a tough thing oh, yeah. to pull off, right? Yeah. Like, to, like, to bring any level of, of sympathy to him, especially towards the end. Uh, takes a lot of skill. <laughs> yeah, so. and we know that, and we know that he's being set up, right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's being set up as, oh man, you're the season one love interest, <laughs> right, right? Right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. but in all fairness, he throws away Cole's photo, but Cole like kills him. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cole, Cole. well, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> It's complicated. <laughs> Saying one of us has higher stakes than the other. <laughs> Who hasn't killed someone? I mean, you know. <laughs> On this show? On this show. Jennifer? Jennifer. Sure, the show. That's what we're talking about. Erin, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. So next we're going to dive in with you. We're going to go to Project Spearhead, right? And we're yes. going to cover 108 and 109. Yes, I'm excited to come back for um, Katrina or Katarina Jones's uh, Dark Knight of the Soul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we will get into that next time. And we have our interview with Todd Stashwick coming up, which is so exciting. That's so, so exciting. Oh, my God. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to, Aaron. You have to write your questions. I do. I know. You yes. Need your okay. Deacon. All right. Yes. You need your deacon questions. I do. So, if you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs> or is it goodbye this time? Oh, no. Damn it! <laughs> Why you gotta be like this, babe? <laughs>